Hey folks, before we get started with today's episode, I have some news to share with you about the Third Degree Podcast. Beginning the week of May 24th, the Third Degree feed, this feed where you're listening now, will feature audio of my weekly notes to the cafe community where I analyze news at the intersection of law and politics. We'll be dialing back the current Monday, Wednesday, Friday format a bit because we're turning our attention to a brand new podcast. I'm going to tell you now, this thing will blow your mind when you hear it. I don't want to say too much at the moment, but it draws on my experience as a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. I can't wait to tell you more about it in the coming weeks, and I can't wait to drop it. I can't wait for you to hear it. So thanks for listening. As always, please keep sending us any thoughts and questions you may have to letters at cafe.com. From Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Third Degree. I'm Ellie Honig. Well, welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us on another lovely Friday. And I am joined this week by, you know her now, our student co-host from the University of Alabama Law School, Kyra Perkins. Kyra, great to see you and congratulations. You've now officially survived your first year in law school. How are you feeling? It's been it's been interesting doing one L year in the midst of everything going on politically, but also everything going on with the pandemic has been just a an experience unlike any other. And I can't say I regret it in any way. I truly love what I'm doing, but wow, has it been very different. You're right. I can't imagine going going through my first year of law school, A, in a pandemic, and B, with so much in the news from everything from the police protests to Gosh, did you catch both impeachments this year? I guess just one impeachment this year to a a presidential election and constitutional issues. And what a year to be in law school for for better and for worse. And I'm I'm glad to hear that you've taken the positive piece of it. So let me ask you this. I I have a question. I think a lot of our viewers out there maybe are thinking about law school or have thought about law school or maybe you're in law school like you. Now that you're a year in, do you feel more or less certain that you want to practice law? I think that being in law school, especially as a 1L, has really reinvigorated my love and my passion for wanting to be a practicing attorney, as well as being on this podcast and getting to discuss legal issues with you. I think I love what I'm doing and I'm excited to continue on in that practice further. I will say I thought I knew more about the law before I started law school and I now realize my limitations and the lack of knowledge and understanding I truly have. So I'm very excited to see where my legal career goes and just to finish up in law school. That is a very healthy realization to come to when you get to law school. I think one of the moments of clarity for me as a law student was when I realized oh, okay, it's not my job to know everything. It's my job to at least know where to look or know who to ask. And I will tell you, as someone who's much more experienced, that that's a feeling that will stay with you. And it can be healthy to understand how much you don't know and how much you can get from working with others. So speaking of being in law school during an eventful year in the news, we got some big news this week, which is that the New York state-level attorney general's office has taken its investigation of the Trump organization, which had been entirely civil, and now they're also taking a look criminally at the AG's office. And I thought we'd start by me giving you some sort of, as somebody who worked in this 
physically in this area. The New York State AG and the DA both have offices very close to the SDNY, where I used to work, the federal prosecutor's office. I have some insight into sort of how this works. I don't have any inside information on what specifically caused it. But let me tell you what I think we do know. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know how close they are to charging. We don't know whether there was a specific piece of evidence that caused them to turn this into a criminal case. But I'll tell you the things that that I am confident in. One, something had to precipitate this move. This move had to be spurred by, I presume, something that the New York AG's office found in its investigation. Otherwise, there would be no other reason to go from civil to criminal. They already had the DA in the criminal lane, and they seem to have this case sort of split up as between civil and criminal. And there was something I believe that the New York AG's office has now seen that has led them to think we ought to be involved in this criminally as well. The upside from a prosecutorial perspective here is they can now combine the resources. The New York AG has expansive resources. And while they actually don't do all types of crime, and and they're not actually all that effective in bringing certain types of prosecutions, the one thing they really do specialize in, they really do know, is complex financial frauds. That's sort of, to me, that's their bread and butter. So if they manage to combine their resources with the DA successfully and integrate successfully and coordinate successfully, it will be a benefit to the prosecutors. But if they don't, it could get ugly because you will have scenarios where multiple prosecutor's offices are looking at the same conduct or the same person. And if you're not coordinating, you can end up in what we used to call turf battles. We used to get in turf battles at the SDNY with other federal districts, like the Eastern District across the river in Brooklyn, the District of New Jersey, fighting over who gets to charge this person, who gets to use this piece of evidence, who gets to go first, and turf battles across offices across different levels of jurisdiction. It sounds like they are working together for now, which is the better practice for prosecutors, but they need to make sure that they don't end up in some sort of territorial dispute. And at the SDNY, we were sort of known for not playing super nice with others, with trying to bull our way into cases and steamroll other offices. And and I guess I think we can plead, I can plead partially guilty on behalf of the SDNY to just that. So we'll see how nicely they're able to play together. The only other thing I want to say before we sort of get into some of your questions is this. The New York Attorney General's office, to me, has been, over the long haul, since I started as a prosecutor, more talk than action. That's not to say that they have never taken action. They've had some significant cases, but they are big on announcements and opening investigations and doing subpoenas and doing search warrants. But if you look at the bottom line output, indictments, arrests, trials, convictions, You're not going to find a heck of a lot. And the question I would pose to our audience is, what is the most significant criminal case you've seen the New York State Attorney General make over the last 15 years? I'm sure there are a couple, but it's not like other offices where you can just peel off. Well, they did this, they did that, especially given that they are in New York. I had one incident, Kyra, where we were not quite working with the New York AG, but we were both looking in the same area. And I went over to their offices for a meeting and they proudly announced, well, we're doing a takedown next week. And I thought, oh, okay, I guess they're way ahead of us. I said, well, who are you going to be arresting then? And they said, 
oh, no, 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 we're not arresting anybody. We're, we're doing search warrants. I didn't say this, but I thought, that ain't a takedown. That's not what we call a takedown. A takedown means you are putting handcuffs on people and arresting people. A search warrant is well short of a takedown. And by the way, they never did make criminal charges in that case. So I think people need to have proper perspective on who the New York Attorney General's office is and, and what they are and are not capable of. So Kyra, give me some of your thoughts or questions that I can help sort of make sense of this for you as somebody who's been on the inside of this kind of scenario. So the first question for me, Ellie, is really when you're looking at criminal charges and there's civil charges and what standard of proof are prosecutors using when deciding whether to open an investigation or to charge? We know all about the beyond the reasonable doubt and everything like that, but that goes more towards when you're trying to get an actual verdict. So when we're just trying to decide whether or not to open an investigation, what standard do we use for that? That's a great question, both both technically and sort of practically. Technically, like you said, Kyra, and I think I'm sure our listeners know, in order to get a conviction in front of a jury, you need to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, if we take it down a level, there's a really interesting sort of theoretical, but also realistic question about how much proof do you need to charge a case, right? To, to go to a grand jury, to write out a criminal complaint. The technical law school answer, if you were asked, is you need probable cause, right? Which is not really that much. It means basically, you know, more likely than not, 50.1% likelihood. Do prosecutors charge based on that? Not the good ones. If you're going to bring a case, in particular, a serious case, you really do need to have more than probable cause. In fact, what I was always taught is you need to be confident you can try this case to a jury successfully before you charge it. So, you know, it's a little crude to put numbers on this, but if you're at 55%, you don't charge a case and say, well, we've got probable cause. We're not ready to prove our case to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. 55% is not that, but let's charge it and then we'll figure out the rest. No, if you're doing it right, you will ensure that you have proof beyond a reasonable doubt or pretty darn close before you pull the trigger on an indictment. And then a level down from that to get to your, I think, original question, where do you open up a case? What's the standard for that? This is really largely up to prosecutors. Most guidance for prosecutors says you need to have what's called predication. And predication really just means a kernel, a nugget, some fact, some basis to believe a crime was committed. And, and I'll tell you something interesting in my experience, and I want to get your views on this. We used to be accused in the mob context of doing it backwards. And so what defense lawyers would say is what prosecutors are supposed to do is there's a crime and then you investigate it, right? But they would say what you guys do in the mob context is you start with the person, John Gotti, Angelo Prisco, mob, you know, big, powerful mob guy. And then you look for the crime. And that's kind of true in the mob context because we knew these guys were big, powerful criminals. But I think it's really the only context where I'm aware that prosecutors will say, well, let's look at that guy. Because of his status, let's try to find evidence of some crime he committed. I think it's perfectly okay in the mob context. But here's my question. Is it okay to do that in the political context. Can you start with the person and then look for the crime ethically or, or sort of morally or just in terms of common sense? Do you think that's fair? I do not at all think that's fair. I think there's a certain level of profiling that goes along with that. And we know how I'm very against profiling in all of its facets. I just think 
You can't look at a person and say, well, they look suspect. I think they're doing something guilty and try and find a crime behind that. If you don't have the crime, I think that our resources are better spent elsewhere. How about in the mob boss context? Like, let's say that, right? Because the, the criticism is you should start with the crime and then find the person. But when it comes to the mafia context, you guys, you prosecutors, Ellie Honig, you know, over here in the organized crime unit, you start with the person and then you look for the crime. And as I said, I'm willing to, Again, I, I feel like I'm doing a lot of pleading guilty. I'm willing to plead guilty to that as well because, well, tell me what you think of that. Is there a problem with that? I would have to think about that. That's a really tough question because I feel like if you're being investigated as a mob boss, there's probably some evidence of a crime for your name to be on that list. So I think that's definitely a different situation. But I think that at the end of the day, unless you can prove that I'm a part of a mob and I'm a part of a you know, criminal enterprise, then you should look to the crimes that you already know are being committed. I don't necessarily think that you should be able to look at the person and then find the crime. And I'm not exactly sure if that's the best use of our limited resources. Yeah, and I I think the the justification, my justification was always, and it's narrow, right? There's not many people in the world. You can say this guy's in the mob. There's, you know, maybe 700 if you add them all up of the made guys in New York City. But my, my justification, and I think all of ours in the organized crime unit was, if you've joined the mob, then you've chosen as a career to be a criminal. I mean, that is your job. And if that's the case, then we're going to find the crimes and we're going to try to end that career. But you do make an important point there, and it's one that we always had to bear in mind. It's not enough. You're not going to get an indictment, and you can't get an indictment just by saying, but this guy's in the mob. Here's a bunch of pictures of him going into social clubs with other mobsters, right? You have to prove a specific crime. And this actually became... I was a little bit of a, I guess, an outlier in the world of prosecuting the mob because what people like to do at the trials was spend the first, I don't know how many hours and days just putting up photos, photos that had been taken by surveillance. You know, just like in the movies, we had these great agents and they would sit there with long lenses and photograph, oh, a mob guy died. We're going to photograph everyone who goes to the funeral. There was a wedding. We're going to photograph everyone at the wedding. And just show hours of, well, here's the defendant with six other mobsters. Here's the defendant with three other mobsters. I thought that that was a waste. I thought that did not work with the jury. I think you want to show a handful of photos. Do it in 10 minutes. Show your five best photos so everyone knows, okay, obviously he's at that mob place. He's with this boss. But I thought people overkilled that. And you need to get to and prove the actual crimes, no matter who the person is. But I thought there was an interesting sort of conundrum there. Let me get your view on this. The former president, the 45th president, Donald Trump, put out a statement after the news broke in which he essentially said, the attorney general for New York has targeted me, Letitia James, from the time of her campaign on. And he mentions all these times that she said, essentially, vote for me and I'm going after these folks. Vote for me and I'm going to take them down. So, Kyra, the former president, Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States, didn't take long to issue a new statement. He, I'm sure, would have tweeted it back in the day, and now he issues these weird from-the-desk-of kind of things. But we got it. And to me, it was the sort of, a lot of the typical Donald Trump nonsense and crazy and sort of paranoia and all that. But I do want to say this. He has a point, okay? I'm going to say this. Donald J. Trump has a point. And here's his point. He makes it inelegantly, of course, but he rails on that the AG has been out to get me from day one, Letitia James, and she campaigned on coming to get me. That's true. I mean, nobody can dispute that. Letitia James based a large chunk of her campaign. We can debate how much, but some of it 
on vote for me because I'm going to go after Trump and I'm going to go after the Trump org. And I am not okay with that. I don't care who the political party is and try to step aside from whether you identify as a Republican or a Democrat or you love Trump or you hate Trump. I will never be okay with any person running for office as a prosecutor on a premise of vote for me so I can go after this person. And the reasons I think are pretty obvious. It's a terrible look. It's not what prosecutors are supposed to be about. And why would you ever fuel the cries of witch hunt? You know Donald Trump's going to say witch hunt. You know anybody who you single out as a candidate for a prosecutor's office who you then charge will say it's a witch hunt. So it, it is not smart. It is not a good look. It is, I don't believe, highly ethical of prosecutors or prosecutorial candidates to do this. Why do they do it? Because perhaps it works. It's red meat. And if you're running for office in an area that is heavily blue or heavily red and you say, vote for me so I can go after the other guy, sad to say, but it works and it sells. And we're seeing a lot of the candidates to replace Cy Vance as DA now come right up to or arguably step over that line. So I'm not okay with that. What do you think? Is it ever justifiable? Is it ever the right thing? Is it ever acceptable for a candidate for elected prosecutorial office to say, vote for me and I'm going to go after X? Well, I will say I completely agree with everything that you just said, Ellie. I mean, it's unethical to say the least, and it's very problematic to run your entire campaign on, I'm going to put such and such in prison, or I'm going to bring charges against such and such. I think it's gaslighting for lack of any other terminology. And I think it's a dangerous game because what if you are able to bring charges? Well, then isn't there an issue of bias there? You ran your entire election on locking somebody up. That to me sounds like you're really witch hunting for somebody specific. So Donald Trump does kind of have a solid point here. I will say the irony is hilarious to me because if I remember correctly, didn't he run part of his presidential campaign on locking Hillary up and that gave him a lot of votes. So the irony here is hilarious, but I would agree with you. It's completely unethical. I don't support it in any way. I think that it shows a little bit too much bias for my personal comfort. You make a great point because when Donald Trump ran, he said at one point in a debate, to Hillary, basically, when I win, you'll be in jail. And his supporters went crazy in a good way. Hey, hooray, right? Michael Flynn, lock her up. And Democrats, and I think more than Democrats, I think fair-minded Republicans said, this is nuts. This is unacceptable. This is not what prosecutors are about. And someone like Tish James has not done that in as aggressive or inflammatory a manner, but the things she said have been unequivocal as a candidate, which is vote for me so I can go after them. And the analogy I'll use if you really hate Trump, and a lot of people do, and if you love Joe Biden, and a lot of people do, what if this? Okay, the attorney general position in the state of Delaware is up for election in 2022. What if a Republican ran for that office and said, hey, everyone, we all know about Hunter Biden, right? Vote for me, and I will nail Hunter Biden to the wall and maybe the whole Biden family. It's really almost no different than what Letitia James did. You can argue, well, Trump did wrong and Hunter Biden didn't. We don't know that. We don't know either of those things at this point. So if you're okay with what Letitia James did, then you have to be okay with my hypothetical Delaware attorney general candidate. I will say this. I've been lucky in that I've never had to work for an elected prosecutor. My, my two jobs have been with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Of course, U.S. attorneys are not elected. They are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. 
And when I was with the AG's office in New Jersey, New Jersey is actually one of, I think it's only four states in the union that has a non-elected attorney general. The New Jersey AG is appointed by the governor and confirmed by the New Jersey State Senate. So I've always had the luxury, I guess, of sitting in my uh, unelected ivory tower or underneath my boss who's sitting in the unelected ivory tower and being able to wag my finger at electeds. But there is a sweet spot here. I know plenty of people who've run for office uh, as prosecutors, DAs, state AGs, and not cross that line. So I think people who, who are applauding the way Letitia James ran or have applauded the way she ran should step back and think about whether it's the right thing in the bigger picture. So, Kyra, I want to end by by thanking you for joining us during this semester. Um, I've really learned a lot from you and, and the other law students. And I don't just say that sort of, you know, wrote. I mean it because it, it's fascinating hearing what young people think. And, and it reminds me how far I am out of law school. Uh, you guys are closer to my kid's age than to my age. But uh, you've given me cause for optimism and hope for the next generation of lawyers. The talents and the perspective that you have and that Safina and Ellie have uh, have really been remarkable to watch. So I, I am proud of you. I will continue to follow your career. You will continue to be involved here with CAFE and with Vox. We have developed a powerful voice in you. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you do in your future. Thank you so much. I want to thank you, Ellie, and the entire Cafe Vox team for allowing me to be on this podcast, giving me a platform to speak about my opinions and my experiences, but also just a topic that I'm very passionate about, which is the law and how the law affects everything that we're doing in our day to day. So I've enjoyed this so much. It's been an amazing and wonderful opportunity. And I can't wait to see where we go from here. Thank you, Kyra. And to our listeners, as we've announced before, we're going to be changing the format here at Third Degree a bit. Every Friday, you'll be getting my notes, which will sound a lot like the individual podcast that we've been doing. We're going to cut back for the time being on the Monday, Wednesday episodes. When something big happens, I will be sure to drop in and give you updates. In the meantime, we are working on something uh, massive, something that will blow your mind, something I cannot wait for you to hear. We've all heard it here. We're working it up. We're editing it. Uh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a huge project. If you love the behind the scenes stuff, if you love to know how things really work in prosecutors' offices in the SDNY, you're going to love this. So stay with us, everybody. Keep sending us your, your comments, questions, and thoughts to letters at cafe.com. Thanks very much. Thank you. Degree is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Ellie Honig. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tadashore. The audio and music producer is Nat Wiener. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer Staten, Noah Azulai, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley.